Um, so a couple of notes for you as we step into the text this morning. Uh, we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 1. Uh, no, Mark chapter 1. Oh, dear. Oh, God, give me strength. Um, Mark chapter 11. Uh, and look, quite honestly, I may have bitten off more than I can chew today um, because we are looking at Mark chapter 11. So uh, we're going to read through the whole text and then we're going to dissect it word by word for you. 33 verses. Some of you haven't, you're not sure what I just said, some of you. Did I just hear what I thought I heard? Word by word? Really? No. Um, so I just wanted to make sure you're watching. So I want you to have your Bibles open, whether that's the hard copy Bible, the Bible apps that you use, uh, write notes, highlight things, ask questions. And I say that because I want... I've got a real heart that we just don't simply read and then teach through the Gospel of Mark this year and we get to the end of the year and go, oh, we read through the Gospel of Mark, we got taught, that was all very nice. This Gospel is actually an invitation to have your life changed, as with all Gospels. But this is actually a, a Gospel of participation, an invitation into participation. And we need participation that brings transformation <laughs> in our community. Uh, in our life. So this morning as we uh, go, move, start, begin the journey into Easter, uh, we're looking at the entry into Jerusalem and a couple of events around that. And the reality is we could probably preach a whole, look at a whole chapter every week and be done with the Gospel of Mark in 16 weeks. For whatever reason, I just felt like it was important to focus on this chapter today. And then the next few weeks as we go towards Easter, Damien, Linda and Jared are going to unpack chapter 14 uh, a little bit more intentionally in the, in the more intentional lead up into Easter. Uh, so beware of that. That's what we're happening. That's, what we're, that's what's happening. Um, as I said, it's not dissect, we are not dissecting every word, but an overview and invitation to respond as we consider who Jesus is. So I'm going to ask our readers to come to the platform, uh, Cindy and Matt, uh, Kirsty and uh, Chris, um, now, some translations you will recognise, a few notes about Mark chapter 11 uh, as we go through. You'll realise it goes from verse 25 to verse 27. Okay? Some translations have cut out verse 26 because uh, it's not recognised as being part of the earliest translations, but someone's got a hold of Mark at some stage and added in a verse essentially from the Gospel of Matthew which says, If you do not forgive, neither will your Father who is in heaven forgive your sins. So that's one little note. But as we read through this text, and I want you to read through it as well, it'll be up on the screen for you, listen for the symbolism. Ask, your quest, ask yourselves about questions between political manoeuvring or revealing God's kingdom, the temple and what it means to bear fruit, recognising authority and how that authority is expressed or lived out. Mark chapter 11, verses 1 to 33. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Say the Lord needs it and will send it back here shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, What are you doing untying the colt? 
They answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. The next day as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. As he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers? The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. In the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree had withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Have faith in God. Jesus answered, Truly, I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in their heart, but believes that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. They arrived again in Jerusalem, and while Jesus was walking in the temple courts, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders came to him. By what authority are you doing these things? they asked. And who gave you authority to do this? Jesus replied, I will ask you one question, answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. John's baptism, was it from heaven or of human origin? Tell me. They discussed it among themselves and said, If we say, from heaven, he will ask, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say, of human origin, they feared the people, for everyone held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. Jesus said, Neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. Thank you. Somewhat a familiar text. Maybe you've read that text in its wholeness before, or maybe you've read it in bits and pieces um, and wondered what on earth is going on. Some of it's familiar in that the entry into Jerusalem. Come, save us, call out. Um, the usual cry Jesus enters and we notice straight up the crowd cheering save us save us and it's worth asking technology's working really well for us isn't it Um, and it's worth asking is save us from what or save us into what Um, we just and that's something we need to keep in mind sorry I can't (laughs) 
Uh, and that's often the challenge. What is, what is God saving us into? What are we being saved from? Particularly today, as we think about it, we can build our own kingdoms. We establish our own kingdoms. We have our own authority. Um, don't worry about it, bro. Yeah, thanks. Um, we have our own authority. We build our own authority. We are our own authority. What do we need saving from? This is, and, but in this first time when Jesus was coming into Jerusalem, people understood what they needed saving from because they needed saving from an empire, a Roman empire, a cruel empire, an overbearing and overwhelming empire, a destructive empire. What are we being saved from and what are we being saved into? And for these people, they understood and we're very much looking for a ruler who will bring a military victory. One who will come with force and with power. At last, the empire will be turned upside down. Roman rule will be done away with. Earthly rule maybe would be done away with. And yes, they will be saved, but perhaps not in the way that they thought or they imagined. They will be saved, but not in the way they expected. Not, certainly not by a returning general who's riding on a military chariot, a, a weapon of war, um, with horses and garrisons surrounding him and following him with, proud, with pride about the victory that they've just claimed over an enemy. As the crowd calls out to be saved, they are yet to understand the fullness of what they too are being saved from and into. And if you're paying attention here around this first century when Jesus is um, walking the earth and coming into Jerusalem, you're hearing a text from Zechariah. Thanks, Gary. You're going to have to do this for me, mate. Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 to 10. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. Doesn't sound like a great victory, does it? And if you're in the midst of this, if you're one of the crowd, remember we've talked about the crowds over the last few weeks, you're getting excited that the Roman Empire, the earthly empire, is going to be undone with force and might. And it's very easy to lose sight of texts like these. And the reality is, if you haven't been a part of the temple, if you haven't been part of the Christian movement, if you haven't been a part of the Jewish line, you might not have heard this text either. But I suspect the chief priests and the temples of the law would have been paying attention to this. And Jesus enters as the Messiah, equipped to bring in God's kingdom, in which human plots and schemes no longer have power, because uh, Zechariah goes on to say, thanks Gary, in chapter 9, verse 16, the Lord God will save his people on that day as a shepherd saves his flock. And while we still look for power, while we still are impressed by might and strength and money and resources, a shepherd saves his flock in gentleness and in quiet strength. In my devotional reading, a mate of mine, Stephen Barrington, asked these questions, thanks Gary. Which king 
or which authority, if you like, are we following today? Today, when we have so many arguments, so many conversations about which leader is the most effective, which leader is the right leader for our country, for our nations, for our state, this is a prevalent question for today. Which king, which authority will we follow today? Which authority will we look to to bring us peace? Where will we find our victory? Do we look for the authority who has the greatest resources, or if you like, the one on the war horse advocating violence and control? And that's not a statement against any of our leaders. That's just, I'm asking us in this room and watching online, who will be the authority that we follow and look up to as the one who will bring victory? Because I tell you what, I don't care who our Prime Minister is and I don't care who our Premiers are, but it's not those people who will bring the victory of God's kingdom. Regardless of how Christian they are. And we need to be very careful about who we worship in our current climate. Which king will we follow? Some of you have been rocked a little bit by that, haven't you? Come back to me. Or do we follow the real king on the donkey, turning our world upside down through acts of sacrificial love? See, that's ridiculous. That is ridiculous. And the world thinks that if you're following Jesus and you want to follow Jesus and you're going to change the world through sacrificial love... The world will look at us and think we're stupid sometimes. Because in that, you're going to be taken for granted. In that, you're going to be abused. In that, you're going to be crucified. But in that, is a saving love. So Jesus enters in Jerusalem. What's the first thing that he does when he gets to Jerusalem? I love this text. Um, Gary, well done, mate. Ahead of the game. Following the well done. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything. But since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. So it seems like it's late. I don't know if there's a hive of activity. We don't really know what hour it is. And in conversations this week, as I was reflecting on this text, um, Jared said to me, he had this image, or he just wondered if Jesus kind of got to the temple courts or got to church, if you like, and he just stood there and went, Now I wonder what's racing through his head in that moment. I know God, I know Father, this isn't what you intended. I know God, I know Father, what you're asking me to do next. <sighs> kind of made me wonder how Jesus would stand here and what he would do. And you'll read that after this he goes out to Bethany and you'll hear this movement. You heard this movement again in Mark chapter 11. He came from, goes from Bethany and Bethphage into Jerusalem, back out to Bethany. You'll hear those townships a few times over the next few weeks. So just keep that in mind. But here's where it gets interesting. Thanks, Gary. So the cleansing of the temple, you would have heard. There's the story of the fig tree. Jesus 
sees a fig tree, goes into the temple, comes back and sees the same fig tree. Why is a fig tree the bookend of a temple story? Have you ever wondered that? Or have you just done all your commentary research? You're already ahead of the game. If you're already ahead of the game, hopefully I add to it. Um, So Jesus makes his way back into Jerusalem the next day. Uh, Thanks, Gary. And it seems like to me that he goes out of his way to have a look at this fig tree, seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf. Now, a fig tree in leaf gives the impression that it's about to or is bearing fruit. That's my understanding. Some of you will maybe want to correct me about my gardening skills later. But I've read other people about that. So that's not my opinion. So he goes out of his way. The leaves indicate that it is healthy and close to bearing fruit. And the author makes the point of saying it's not the season for figs, which is fascinating. Fascinating. And it's here that Jesus curses the tree. Now, what we need to understand at this moment, and this might help us uh, go a little bit further. The Jewish people understood the fig tree. All right, so you've got the, you've got the image of the fig tree. You with me? The Jewish people understood the fig tree to be symbolic of the temple. The strength, the power, the fruit, the activity, the fig tree kind of heightened that. The fig tree in leaf giving the impression it is about to bear fruit, giving the impression of all the right activity. All right, you joining the dots here yet? Let's, let me give you a few text here again from the prophets Hosea chapter 9 verse 10 uh, and verse 15 when I found Israel it was like finding grapes in the desert when I saw your ancestors it was like seeing the early fruit on the fig tree this is meant to be an expression of beauty and wonder and refreshment and joy for the people of Israel the fig tree was like God's blessing and favor and beauty in relationship it doesn't take very long in Hosea before he, because of their deeds, their sinful deeds, I'll drive them out of my house. I'll no longer love them. All their leaders are rebellious. In Micah chapter 7, what misery is mine? I'm like one who gathers summer fruit at the gleaning of the vineyard. There is no cluster of grapes to eat, none of the early figs that I crave. And in Jeremiah chapter 8 and chapter 29, I will take away their harvest, says God. There will be no grapes on the vine, there will be no figs on the tree, and their leaves will wither. What I have given them will be taken from them. I mean, (laughs) I hope this is kind of messing with your heads and blowing your minds a little bit. Oh, what I have given them will be taken from them. Well, I guess what we need to understand through this, if you're reading the Bible anyway, listen for these little symbols along the way. This is a big story. You're invited into the big story. Jeremiah goes on, I will send the sword, famine and plague against them and I'll make them like figs that are so bad they cannot be eaten. And why? Because they have not been faithful to the covenant of God, to the promise of God. These 
prophets are talking about the people of Israel, those who profess to be the righteous people of God, those who have turned his temple into everything that it was never meant to be, full of activity, and yet not bearing the fruit of the kingdom, full of activity, and yet not worshipping God, but instead had become, as Jesus said, a den of robbers. And they were ripping people off. So you were meant to come into the temple, and if you were poor, you were meant to be able to exchange currency or buy what you needed so that you could go and offer your sacrifice. And that system had been turned into a profit market for those who were there to serve the people. The temple, or in our case, the church, like the fig tree, can have all the appearance of activity, all, sorry, all the appearance and activity of healthy life and not bear the fruit of the Father. And in this, it's this expression that Jesus uh, expresses his anger. Thanks, Gary. Can you just go ahead for me, mate? He particularly at money changers and those selling doves in the temple. See, this is, you'll notice in um, verse, uh, what verse was it? 17, uh, Jesus teaches them and he draws upon another prophet, uh, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. Did you hear that? <laughs> a house of prayer for all nations. Not a selective group of people, but this is meant to be like the beginning place for everyone else to be invited in, to be welcomed in, to participate in life with me. And you're meant to be the, the witnesses, the example, the invitation into this relationship. You're not meant to be the barrier, the blockage, the exclusion zone for all other nations to participate in this way of life, to receive this gift. You're the invitation where um, everyone else wants to desire a relationship with the Father, to be restored in relationship with the Father. This is not meant to be a place of deceit, exclusion, extortion and separation, but a place for all nations to be included, invited and accepted into relationship. So what should the fruit of God's people look like? I want to suggest the fruit of God's people. Gary, what's the next slide for me, please, mate? Yep. I want to suggest that the fruit of God's people um, is about boldness in faith, obedience in prayer, and participation in the forgiveness of the Father. People were meant to be coming from all nations to participate in the sacrifice so they can know the forgiveness of God, so they could participate in the forgiveness of God. That was meant to be symbolic of a powerful, transforming relationship with God. And Jesus is now saying there is a new centre of that community. Everything the temple was meant to offer, everything the sacrifices were meant to make available was now being established through Jesus. And yes, Jesus ex makes um, an exaggeration of his image to make the point. Whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. I say to you, if you ask for this mountain to be thrown into the sea, it will happen. How many people have asked for a mountain to be moved into the sea? Just testing it out. Yes, Jesus every now and then exaggerates, uses exaggerated imagery to make his point. 
Be bold in your prayer. Be daring in your prayer. Be in relationship. You're in relationship with the Father. And I think this, he shifts this because the fruit is not coming into the temple and offering your sacrifice. The fruit is in relationship. And I think this statement joins with the previous statement uh, in his teaching, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. And what should you pray for? Forgiveness. The greatest gift, the greatest act, the greatest mountain that could ever be overcome is the one of forgiveness. The one that had become about exclusion, the one that had become about um, uh, conspiracies and corrupt people making money, making profits. And Jesus, I think he actually says here, um, if you want to know what you can ask for, that will be yours. Stand praying. Remember, they're meant to come into the temple making sacrifices for forgiveness. And Jesus says, when you stand praying, forgive, those things, I think, are joined together. Like I said, I might have been biting off more than I can chew this morning. But I hope you're kind of picking up a little bit of threads. So your mountain in the sea isn't the purpose of your prayer. But to desire relationship with the Father is the purpose of your prayer. And everything else comes out of that relationship. It's not accidental, I don't think, either, that when you read through this text... um, and our English translations get a bit muddled, I think, because English is a great language, firstly. Um, we lose some of the nuances around some of the words that are used. And we like to put headings in between to break up the text because that helps us read easier. But these all kind of um, lead in together. and they've, So Jesus has come in and he's told, the, he's told the disciples on his way in that you, know, you can pray for anything. You know, seeing the fig tree is being withered. The activity, it's no good anymore. This is not how God's going to reveal himself through the temple that he'd established. There's a new center of community. And then it's not accidental that the same question the teachers of the law asked Jesus at the start of the gospel comes again in this moment. Do you remember this last week, a couple of weeks ago, we spoke about when Jesus healed the paralytic man? And Jesus asked this question. Thanks, Gary. He's asked this question by the teachers of the law What authority do you have to forgive sins? It's pretty, you know. And Jesus says, I'll show you what authority. And he says to the man, get up and walk. (laughs) It's no accident. It's no accident that at the start of the gospel, the question is there of the authority of Jesus. And then again, as Jesus makes his way into Jerusalem, making his way to the cross, turning tables upside down, cleaning out the temple. And what's the question? Whose authority are you doing this under? Are you seeing the invitation yet? Are you seeing this we, and you know, I know we can say all throughout Mark, but I guess 
this is an opportunity to see the, the bookends of Mark, the early parts of Mark and the ends of Mark, and then in the middle we'll be able to put all this together and see the beauty and the magnificent way in which Jesus challenges the authority, invites people into relationship, invites you and I to still respond. The crowds are right. Jesus has come to save them, just not in the way they expect. That's still the truth. We're still calling out for Jesus to save us, but I think it's not going to happen how we expect. It will happen through sacrificial love. It will happen when followers of Jesus actually pick up the mantle, follow him, and offer that to the world. It will happen when we experience and receive and live out of the forgiveness of the Father and so offer that to others around us in a sacrificial expression of love. Forgiveness costs us something, does it not? Here's the thing, if the teachers of the law and the elders in a temple don't recognise the authority of Jesus, either at the start when they ask who can forgive sins but God alone, or as we get towards the end of this story, as we get towards the end of this gospel, they still are not able to recognise the authority that he is operating out of. Jesus isn't going to tell them. If what he has done isn't enough evidence for them, that's on you, ladies and gentlemen. (laughs) And it's still true today. If you don't want to take the authority of Jesus seriously, that's on you. Thanks, Gary. And this invitation is left for us. Who do you say Jesus is? Does Jesus still have the authority in your life to heal, to forgive, to direct your path, to break the bondage of fear, to smash the structures that oppress the poor? Does he have the authority to call you into a new way of living, a new way of kingdom-minded living? Where is your authority directed? We might be too afraid to see it, too proud to accept it, or too busy protecting our own kingdoms to respond to it. I hope not. May we not be like the teachers of the law, but may we have hearts and minds open to receiving and participating in the glory and the wonder and the presence of the Father as revealed through Jesus. May we not be like a fig tree that has all the evidence of activity, all the evidence of fruit-bearing life, but is simply withering away and dying. May we instead be people who come alive because we surrender and submit to the authority of Jesus, who has come to show us the abundance of life in him in relationship with the Father. And it's in this I'd love to invite you now to take your communion, peel off the layers. Hold it there. If we jump ahead a couple of chapters as we have it in the Gospel of Mark, in chapter 14... 
When evening came, Jesus arrived with the twelve, and they were reclining at the table, eating. He said, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me. (laughs) One who was eating with me. Even in that moment, Jesus was still prepared to offer forgiveness. Even in that moment, he was still inviting people to share in the blessing of life, the fullness of life. Even in that life, even though Judas wouldn't take it up, Jesus was offering forgiveness. You can participate in this meal with me. I hold nothing against you. (laughs) That's some kind of sacrificial love. We know the story of Judas. He didn't accept the authority of Jesus in his own life. He chose a different path. But this meal, friends, this meal is an invitation to participate with Jesus as the authority of our lives. I know we've reduced it down. It's become very personal. It's become very singular. And yet it's meant to be about us in community with the Father. It's meant to be about us participating in the ways of the Father, bearing the fruit of the Father, bearing the fruit of His kingdom, building His kingdom. Not just activity, but recognising His authority, living out of His authority, forgiving in His authority. And while they were eating, Jesus took bread. He gave thanks and broke it and gave it to His disciple. Disciples saying, take it, this is my body. In this I invite you to eat the wafer and remember the body of Jesus. And then he took the cup. He gave thanks and he offered it to them and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. This is my blood of relationship. This is my blood of sacrificial love. This is my blood that bears the fruit of the kingdom. This is my blood for your forgiveness. Drink this together in memory of him. As we drink it, may it not simply be a memory, but a decision to participate. Not just in all the activity, but in the way of life in the celebration of forgiveness, in the joy and the wonder of forgiveness that's known through the Father. Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for the way in which you've revealed yourself to us. We thank you, Father, for the way in which you've uh, ministered to us through Jesus. And we pray that as we take your word, as we continue to immerse ourselves in your word even as we ask questions of things that I might have made more confusing today I pray Father that you might just bring revelation and power 
that you might bring healing and restoration, that you might bring forgiveness, that we might receive your forgiveness as it was meant to be, where there's no barriers, no exclusion, but instead the beauty and the wonder and the joy of invitation, inclusion, acceptance, your mercy and grace to be poured out over us. Father, I pray that whatever storms people are fighting, whatever storms people might be uh, struggling with now, that uh, your word of forgiveness, your authority of forgiveness will pour out over us. Holy Spirit, minister deeply, personally and lovingly into each of us. That we might not merely participate in the activity, but that we might know the joy and the wonder of relationship with you. In the name of the Father we pray. Amen. We'd like to close this morning's service by um, the, the song that we started with, Raise a Hallelujah, a song of declaration, a song that says God has a victory. Whatever storms that we're in, whatever struggles we have, whatever fears that we have, we can raise a hallelujah knowing that God has already claimed that victory and we can participate in the victory. I don't know where some of you stand today or what your relationship with Jesus is like. Maybe you need to declare Jesus Christ as your authority again as that final authority over your life. We want to invite you to move out of your seat and you can come and talk to me. Or maybe it's just you want to go to someone that you love or someone that you know or someone that you respect and have that conversation with them and ask them to pray with you in that. Maybe you need healing or restoration or maybe you've got a confession that you want to share privately. You can, again, come and chat with me or maybe there's someone that you respect and know. And we'd love to share in that and lead you in that and through that to know the forgiveness and the glory of God bringing healing and restoration, knowing he has the authority to forgive sins and bring us into new life and to bear his fruit according to his purposes.